Being what people call a living legend takes on a whole new meaning when you routinely put your life at risk to climb the world's tallest mountains. Ed Viesters is one of the world's most accomplished climbers. In 2005, he became one of the few to have reached the top of the world's 14 tallest mountains, and he does it without using supplemental oxygen. Ed has received major awards from National Geographic, the Explorers Club, and the American Alpine Club. You can see him as a featured climber in the 1998 IMAX film Everest. He's co-authored with David Roberts the bestsellers No Shortcut to the Top and K2, Life and Death on the World's Most Dangerous Mountain. Their latest collaboration is The Mountain, about what Ed calls the irresistible lure of Mount Everest. Ed Viesters, thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Yeah, you're welcome. The subtitle of your book is The Irresistible Lure of the World's Highest Peak. What is it that's irresistible about Mount Everest? I think the primary reason is it's the highest peak on Earth, and it will forever be that. And it's become this iconic brand of a mountain. You know, if you want to climb a mountain and have it on your resume, Mm -hmm. no matter where you're from or what you're doing, Everest is probably on that list. I selected it to talk about because I spent 11 expeditions there. I've been on the summit seven times and I was able to live my dream there when I first climbed it without the use of supplemental oxygen. You've stood on the top of Mount Everest seven times. Take us just on one of those ascents. I mean, I imagine each one had its own story. Describe your most memorable final ascent, the last couple hundred yards. Probably the most memorable for me was the first time I actually got to the top, and that was in the spring of 1990. And you're on this expedition for literally 12 weeks, and it's the last day that you know it's going to be the hardest by far, especially when you're not using supplemental oxygen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, above 28,000 feet, the higher you go, the slower you go, simply because of the lack of oxygen. Mm. And I remember having to literally breathe and count 15 breaths for every step that I took, and then willing myself to take that next step. And that goes on for 12 hours on that summit day. So there's a lot of moments during that day, you know, eight or 10 hours into that day where you start to question why do I want to be doing this right now? This is difficult. It's somewhat painful. I'm suffering. And then you got to kind of internalize that and turn it into a positive and say, you know, if I do push through this and get to the top, it will feel amazing. And it is amazing once you take those last staggering steps to the top oh. and you're on, uh, on the highest point on earth. You take 15 breaths for each step on that last segment? Correct. And, you know, the slower you go, the higher you are. And, right. and it's just, it's, it's mind over matter, basically. You have to be willing to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Now, Ed, when you stand on the top of Mount Everest, I would imagine it's frustrating because you can't just relax and celebrate it. You're, you're immediately thinking about getting down. What do you do on top? How long can you stay there? What, what does it feel like? It's this amazing moment of elation and you have this great feeling that, wow, now I don't have to go up anymore. I finally get to start going down. But time goes very quickly up there. If you if the weather's nice and it's early enough, I've spent as long as an hour up there. But it, it goes by in a flash because you're taking in the view, you're absorbing the moment, you're taking some pictures and you're correct. You are happy, you are excited, but you aren't quite relaxed because you know you've only done half the climb. And that's something I always try to remember. 
that getting down is the primary goal and you have to budget resources, time, energy, and planning to make sure you get down. Once you're at the bottom, that's when you celebrate. So a lot of people have climbed on Everest and you've done it seven times. Do climbers have fun at the summit or or is it all business? It's a little bit of everything. I mean, the business part of it, you know, obviously if you need to take some photos, if you've got sponsors that are relying on you taking a flag up there, that's the business end of it. But the fun part is just taking in the view. You know, Mm. you do a 360. Mm. There's no other mountain higher than you. You're looking down on a sea of mountains. And that's the moment that you try to memorize because you think, wow, I'll never be here again. Are you above the weather? Quite typically, uh, hopefully you're above any type of weather. You know, you're looking down on a sea of clouds. Mm-hmm. In the later part of the day, obviously, is in any mountain range in the world, weather starts to build in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're actually in the clouds mm. on the summit. Mm. One of my favorite photos in your book is the one of Dougal Haston and Doug Scott. It was called Late in the Day, Ascending 1975. And they survived the highest bivouac ever attempted. I had a sense that they were pushing the limit there and they were, they were going to get to the top, but because of that, they had to sleep higher than what would be normal. What was the story with that? Yeah, they were, I mean, they decided to push it. They got to a point 300 feet below the summit at 3.30 in the afternoon. Mm. And they made a very conscious decision that knowing three hours later they would be on the summit and that they would have to spend the night out at 28,700 feet. So rather than, you know, pulling the plug and going down before it was too late, they accepted it and they somehow survived the night. They dug a hole in the snow. They kept slapping each other in the back. They had conversations with their toes. I mean, they were hallucinating a little bit. But they were so strong and so motivated that they came away unscathed. And they were willing then, because of the the success of that climb, to risk, you know, spending the night out. And that's a huge commitment. Did they do that after summiting or just before summiting? They did that on the way down. That's unique, I suppose. Oh, for sure. And I write about how beautiful that scene is, but also how foreboding it is knowing that nightfall is only minutes away. Oh, Would you call that reckless? It's calculated risk. Um, I mean, these guys were very talented. They knew exactly what they were doing. And I always say that everybody has their own level of acceptable risk. Are you willing to reach a summit at sunset? Some people are. Me personally, I am not. My my rule was if I'm not close to the summit or on the summit at two in the afternoon, Mm -hmm. I'm going down. Now you're famous for climbing without oxygen. How is that experience different? Why do you huff and puff without oxygen when somebody could just stick a tank on and and not have that extra burden? You know, for me, I wanted the challenge. And I thought if I was going to go to a mountain that's 29,000 feet, I didn't want to pull it down to my level. I wanted to experience it at its level. And for me, that meant choosing not to use supplemental oxygen. I also thought it would be more interesting, less cumbersome, And also, in the end, safer. I wasn't relying on Hmm. a life support system Hmm. that could potentially fail. And I've seen people high on Everest, you know, their system fails, they Hmm. run out of oxygen, and it's literally like pulling a plug, and then you're out of luck. Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ed Veasters, and Ed's book, his latest book is The Mountain, My Time on Everest, The Irresistible Lure of the World's Highest Peak. Ed's other books are No Shortcuts to the Top, 
K2, Life and Death in the World's Most Dangerous Mountain, and The Will to Climb. Ed, I understand there's a lot of different routes up Mount Everest. Is is one of them for the, you know, the relative, uh, not rookies, but the, the easiest, and is one considered like almost impossible? Yeah, there's a lot of different variations to get to the top of Everest. The normal or what we call the easiest way up is via the South Call or the Nepal side. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the route that was pioneered in 1953 by Hillary and Norgay. Mm-hmm. And it is objectively the easiest and simplest way. You know, people talk about amateurs on Everest or rookies, but, you know, mm-hmm. by and large, the most of the people that are there are highly experienced amateur climbers. They've spent their whole lives climbing other mountains, and then they decide, well, I'm going to try to climb Everest. The hardest routes on Everest tend to be on the other side, the east face, which Mm -hmm. is very steep, but also very objectively dangerous. And there's only been one or two ascents on that side of the mountain. In your book, you, you really respect the Sherpas. You call them the true heroes of Everest. In fact, you dedicate your book to the Sherpas. Tell us about the Sherpas. Oh, they're wonderfully amazing people. You know, they migrated from Tibet several hundred years ago into Nepal over the mountains, and they've kind of settled in the higher elevations of Nepal, 12, 13, 14,000 feet. So physiologically, they've been very adapted to working at altitude. And from the time that they're kids, you know, going from village to village, there's no roads, they have to walk. Mm -hmm. And whatever you have with you, you've got to carry on your back. So they're very accustomed already to carrying loads. And so we go to Nepal and we hire them, a group of them, five, six, 10, 12, to help us carry our loads of equipment up the mountain. And, you know, we treat them equally as team members. They're paid well, they get bonuses, and we integrate them into our expedition team. And we become friends with them. You take people up there for hire. You hear a story about these wealthy people that have blisters and they have to be carried the last leg of the journey or something like that. What is the state these days? Uh, is there an infrastructure in place so there's ladders and steps and anybody who's in good shape with a good guide can get to the top? Or is it embarrassing? Is it too congested? Well, it's congested because it's very popular and there's a lot of people out doing adventure. That's why it's congested. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a misconception that, you know, yes, you're paying a lot of money, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars to be a client on one of these climbs, but it doesn't mean you have a ticket to the top. Mm. You have to be competent, you have to have skill, you have to be strong enough to climb to the top of Everest. And mm. it's the job of the guides to do the logistics, to make the decisions. And if there's any point along the way that you as the client aren't performing, it's our jobs as guides to say, you know what, I think you've reached your high point. Wow. So, you know, in the general public, you hear about rich and wealthy people going to the top and getting pulled and getting carried. It simply doesn't happen. <laughs> the mountain dictates who gets to the top, not the guides. Okay. And you're hired or um, a mountaineer would be hired and, and it's expensive and these people have put forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 into it. They have to go with the guide's advice. If they say, this is as high as you're going to go, I don't care what you paid, you can't pay more you're not going to the top. Right. As guides, you can imagine the pressure we have. The more somebody is investing, that can tend to trickle into your decision-making. And that's what happens a lot on Everest. You know, there's a lot of pressure on these guides with six or eight of these clients that are paying a lot of money to make decisions based on success Mm -hmm. rather than safety. And that shouldn't come into play. I've always said, whether I'm guiding on Rainier or Mount McKinley or Everest, the rules have to be the same. And if anything, stricter 
on Everest. I would think that would be a very strong precondition for this whole thing is I'm the boss, I'm the guide, safety is fundamental. Sure. When people sign up with me, I lay out the ground rules. I say, here's the deal. Here's how it's going to work. And if you don't agree, don't come with me. I don't want your money. Ed, is there a lot of infrastructure that's in place that just stays there when you're climbing the south route up Everest? Well, the infrastructure that's there is what we put in every time we go. There's the ice fall, which is the first part of the climb right from base camp. It's this jumbled area of ice blocks and crevasses. And to negotiate a pathway through there, we bring ladders Mm -hmm. and we make bridges and we climb very steep faces with these ladders. We have to carry equipment onto the mountain, the tents, the ropes, the anchors. But do those ladders and things, do they stay there for the next year? No, they stay for the duration of the expedition, which could be eight or 10 weeks. And at the end of the expedition, we bring everything off. If you left a ladder in the icefall, that icefall is going to move in the next two or three months, and those ladders are going to get crunched and destroyed. Ed, you've you've attempted 11 times. You've got to the summit seven times. Tell us about the four times. Do you feel defeated when you don't get to the top? It it must feel a little deflating. Well, it is deflating, but I don't feel defeated. The four times that I did not get to the top, it wasn't based on my lack of motivation or ability. It's always been because of conditions beyond my control, and I'm willing to accept that. We call it listening to the mountain. No matter how ambitious you are, how motivated you want to be, at some point, sometimes on these mountains, the conditions are simply too dangerous, whether Mm -hmm. it's weather or avalanche, where you have to know it's time to turn around. And it was actually on my first expedition to Everest that I turned around 300 feet from the summit. Whoa, three, you, oh, you could taste the summit. You could see the summit. Oh. Conditions were worsening. It, the weather was coming in, and my partner and I, we said, you know what? We could get to the top no matter what, mm-hmm. but we're not going to survive the descent. Mm-hmm. And I've, all, you know, I've always said climbing has to be a round <laughs> trip. It doesn't make sense if you just go to the summit. You have to get down. And if you walk away, I don't call those failures. They're no. called non-successes, non-successes. You can't Monday morning quarterback that. you got to go with the best decision, and the weather dictates it a lot of time, I would suppose. Right, and you see things, you feel things. A lot mm-hmm. of the decisions we make are based on our instinct. Right. I've always said if it feels wrong, mm-hmm. it is wrong. You just walk away. There's a mentality up there that if 40 people are going on a certain day, no matter what, you kind of want to get swept along into that group think. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt, no, it's better to make your own decision and Mm -hmm. and let people go one way. And if you feel like going the other way, Mm -hmm. you turn around and go down. Well, that's the mark of a a good leader on the mountain, I would suppose. How is climbing Everest a personal triumph, and how is it a matter of teamwork? It's both. I mean, you have to be, as an individual, you have to be ready to go. You've got to be highly trained. You've got to be physically fit, mentally motivated. And as part of a team, you have to contribute to that team. I learned so much about teamwork climbing mountains. You know, early on, I was invited to go on expeditions, and I was one of eight. And knowing that maybe only one or two of us would eventually get to the summit, but we Mm. all worked together, helping to carry loads of equipment, helping to establish the camps, knowing that our contribution was a contribution to the success of the team itself. Well, haven't you actually given motivational talks at corporations on teamwork? Yeah, I do a lot of speaking. I mean, businesses and corporations, they love the mountain as a metaphor, hmm. the teamwork, mm-hmm. the risk management in the financial world is a, is the big metaphor. 
the leadership decisions, mm. um, you know, making hard decisions, letting the team provide input, but ultimately the leader has to make the final decision. So all those things that we do in the mountains, people can use those same ideas in business as good, well. Good, good, strong parallels. Now, you summited, uh, your last summit, you were, uh, what, nearly 50 years old. You're 54 now. Is it remarkable for a 50-year-old person to get to the summit? Uh, what does it mean now for you at 54 as a mountaineer? You know, for me, when I climbed uh, my last time on Everest, I was just shy of 50. And it wasn't that big of a deal for me. I'd been doing it, you know, for the last 30 years, and my body was still fit. I was still ready to do it, and I could probably still do it today. Mm-hmm. I think for the average 50-year-old, if you've not been physically fit your whole life, if you haven't been climbing, it might be a harder concept to climb Everest. But mm-hmm. for somebody like me that's been doing it my whole life, it wasn't really all that bad. We've been speaking with Ed Viesters, his book, The Mountain, My Time on Everest, The Irresistible Lure of the World's Highest Peak. And people can learn about Ed Viesters' climbs and his adventures at edviesters.com, E-D-V-I-E-S-T-U-R-S.com. Ed, talking to you is such an inspiration. What inspiration do you get standing on top of the world's highest mountain? You know, the fact that I chose a path in my life and I chose to do something rather difficult and I never gave up. You know, I, I, I can truly say, and I talk about this in my books, that I have lived my dreams. You know, I, I grew up in Illinois of all places and as a kid dreamed of climbing Everest. And I took all those steps necessary. I learned, I met the right people. I was patient enough. I listened to the mountain. And I think in the end, based on my patience and humility, that the mountain allowed me to climb to its summit. Life lessons from the top of Mount Everest. Ed Viesters, thanks so much. You're welcome. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.